This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome, lovely people, to Out to Lunch, the place where the glitterati join me for several courses of fantastic food and we shoot the breeze. My guest today is a stand-up comedian and a radio and TV presenter. He's hosted The Mash Report on BBC Two, Newsjack on Radio 4 Extra and The News Quiz. Yes, topical news-based comedy really is his thing. Over plates of fabulous Mexican food, we explore why there are so few right-wing comedians, talk about the benefits of being angry, and my guest finally explains why he decided to do a bunch of political gags at a charity gig that so infuriated the audience he was pelted with bread rolls and booed off stage it's the brilliant nish kumar that does include the home secretary bridget patel indeed yes every asian kid's least favorite aunt (laughs) (laughs) so for this episode of out to lunch i've come to not far from london bridge um nish kumar loves his food properly goes to restaurants a lot he you know he's a bit nerdy when it comes to it and i wanted to bring him somewhere that was going to impress him so we've come to santo remedio uh which is a mexican restaurant by which i mean proper mexican edson and natalie who who own it are from mexico none of your tex-mex americana stuff this is uh, tacos tostadas uh, moles the whole thing it's really good and i know that because i reviewed it when it first opened in 2015 and it knocked my socks off uh so my socks are on and ready to be knocked off all over again alongside Nish's. Let's get inside. Nish! Hey, how are you? I'm very well. Nice to see you. Have a seat. Uh, so Nish, welcome to Out to Lunch. Um, Thank you very much. Now, uh, people do this podcast for various reasons. Yeah. Some do it very flatteringly because they like my restaurant reviews and want to, you know, have that chat. Cathy yeah. um, Burke wanted to do it because she was besotted with my late mother. Yeah. I've been reading up on you and listening to stuff and I'm pretty convinced that the reason you're here is for lunch. For lunch, yeah, 100% for lunch. But uh, food, <laughs> proper food, it's, it's part of the family law. Oh as my well, God, it? it's, it's everything. You know, the whole structure of my life is where are we eating next? As much as anything, it's part of the family business because my grandfather ran curry houses. His final job before he retired was running a proper greasy spoon. Bacon, sausage, egg. Bacon, sausage, egg. And so it really is, I feel the dream of multicultural Britain is you come here, you open a you hard. and then you... <laughs> you open a greasy spoon. And you open a greasy spoon. And you come up with a menu where every dish is numbered <laughs> so that the customers can come in and say, I'll have a number seven, please. So this is Natalie. Hi, Natalie, how are you? One of the owners. Oh, of... lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Welcome to Santa Radio. I have heard you talk about the poppadoms that your grandmother, I think, used to make and throw in. So I think we should yeah. get some. Are they, is it tatopos? Tatopos, yes. Yeah, so they're the crunchy corn tortilla chips. Amazing. Which we have with salsas, which we bring to the table usually, and then guacamole as well, which you can have with or without grasshoppers. With, well, with grasshoppers. With, surely. With grasshoppers. Yeah. Um, are you drinking? Why not? <laughs> well. What are you going to have? Um, actually, I'm going to be slightly boring. And ha- is it a hotata? Hotata, which is not alcoholic. I, I really like mezcal, but I don't know a huge amount about it. They're made from an agave plant, like tequila. The heart of agave is roasted, so right. it gives it like quite a smoky flavour as well. But that's definitely um, one of my favourite. I love one of those, please. Thank you very much. 
It's 12.22 on a Wednesday and Nish Kumar is hitting the mezcal. <laughs> I'm going to get a very angry phone call from my mother when this goes out. Oh, really? Yeah. Excellent. And then if you look at the menu on your left, I think I have to point this out, the uh, pricing. Nish Kumar, live at the Apollo, made a point about dish prices. Do you want, do you want to comment on this? Or? <laughs> it's, it was around 2009 where people stopped putting the currency on menus and it would just be, it would just be the numbers. And I... Yeah. You've got some good material I've got some. I've got some good material out of it. Yes, I, I, I can see 8.5. Yeah. <laughs> it's not real money. It's, it's not, not real money. money. That's a, <laughs> it's just a number. So is there anything you've particularly got your eye on there? Well, I've always, always got my eye on soft shell crab. Yeah. So one of oh. those, I've always got my eye on pork belly. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and the tuna tostadas. Yes. How about the grilled vegetable one, just to show that we're with the agenda? Yeah, of, yeah, 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 okay. And people, yeah. yeah. I think that offsets me having mezcal at midday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the lamb shank? Yes. Perfect, thank, thank you very you. much. You've talked That's about delicious. anger. Yes. Being angry. Yes. Were you an angry... Teen. I was a bit of an angry teen. I once told James Acaster that I, uh, I made the mistake of giving some personal information to him, which he obviously weaponised against me immediately. But I told you him actually lived together for a while. It should be said. I've, didn't I, I've lived with James on various occasions, but it, I said to him that I debated at school, yeah. and he said, "I've I now understand everything about your personality." <laughs> I was quite an argumentative kid, not not really with my parents, which was part of their confusion when they would get hauled into parents' evenings and told that I was, you know, a really gobby, disrespectful kid. But the problem that I had at school was that some teachers found that very grating, as I think I would if I met a 15-year-old who was like me. But some teachers found it very charming and certainly encouraged... The gobbiness. It encouraged the gobbiness, yes. Were your contributions to debates in any way amusing? They were only amusing. I did debating competitions when I was at school. You know, whatever the subject was, I would try and thread an argument together. And then I would punctuate that argument with jokes because that was the most interesting thing for me to do. And if you look at what I do now in my whole career, that is effectively all I do, is I try and thread an argument together and then I try and make sure that I pack it with as was many jokes. Was there a particular debate where you worked out that it, the audience was laughing and therefore they were going to vote for you over your... Uh, over the opposition. I think the good fellows of comedy, as far back as I can remember, really? I wanted to be funny, yeah. <laughs> uh, my own... is, is that not the, uh, literally the first line of Goodfellas? As far back as I can remember, I wanted to be in the mob. No, there's a discussion about why the noise is coming out of the boot. Oh, yeah. And they investigate and then put an end to the noise in the boot, which is as PG a way of describing the opening of Goodfellas as I can. And then there is a sort of... Uh, you know, a crash zoom onto Ray Liotta's face. And as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. But for me, you know, everybody needs a, a bad influence uncle in their life. And I certainly had a bad influence uncle. What, did, what, what was his name? Raj. And did Raj literally say, slip you Derek and Clive out? No, he bought me a Simpsons VHS when I was five years old. All right, that's it, John. And that was it. My mother has blamed a lot of people for my career, right. but she should probably start with her own brother. <laughs> Thank you. Great. So how do yes. I pronounce this? Horchata. And describe the contents of it to me. So horchata is a refreshing drink made with rice and cinnamon. And it's like really popular soft drink. And you've got a glass of mezcal. And with... what's the correct way for me to consume this? Normally you serve it with orange and with a chilli salt. So Great. sip it and have a little bite of the orange with the chilli salt. Another little sip 
I don't know how you would prove the existence of God, but I feel like chili salt would be a pretty good place yeah, to start. I think it's, as, as a diehard atheist, I'm with you there. <laughs> oh, we've got, we've got things to eat. Oh, here we go. Here's your guacamole with grasshoppers. Wow. This is the salsa verde with tomatillo. Oh, great. And this is the salsa roja, which is roasted right. tomatoes. Oh, fantastic. And red chilies, and I'll bring you some more. Okay, That's great. I'll Thank shove you. that into the middle. So when we're talking like sort of 1995 to 2000, when you were 10 to uh, yeah. 15, whatever, were there any role models for you to look at? Yes. Any brown people, yeah, Indian people? Yeah, very specifically. I mean, you could, the most important thing that happened to me really was the start of Goodness Gracious Me. That's the most important thing that happened in my entire career, really. I mean, the funny thing about Goodness Gracious Me that I don't think everybody really clocked was the appropriation of Peter Sellers' intensely racist depiction of what it was to be. I, you know, it does all that coding on you, whether you know that that's a reference or not. I mean, we were too young to understand what was going on, but for my parents, it must have been sort of vaguely thrilling. From the immediate use of the title to the theme tune, it's all reappropriating stuff that Peter Sellers did. Goodness gracious me, it was the catchphrase of one of his Indian characters, the song, is a song that he recorded as one of his Indian characters with a sort of generous dollop of boot polish on his face. And the fact that they were immediately saying, we have now taken back, if I may borrow a popular phrase from British politics in the last five years, they've taken back control of where, why people are laughing at you, them. You can almost use that phrase <laughs> without me actually flinching and having a kind of gag reflex. It's great, isn't it? So good. Was it a kind of family appointment? Did the whole of the... The entire the family... The Kumars just sort of stop, right? My, my brother and I were given special dispensation. You know, when we were kids, honestly, my mum would shout from downstairs, everyone come quick, there's an Indian on the TV. The fact that they, they had written it themselves with, a, with other writers, but the fact that they, were invo- that they were Asians involved in the creation of it, and the fact that the tone of it was confrontational at points, yeah. and making fun of white people. We'd never seen that before. You know, we, Asians were supposed to be on television, you know, giving very, like, noble speeches about how someone had written Paki on their shop front. That was what, that was what we grew up seeing images of Asians as. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's got a very sort of, I don't know, 1977, year zero punk feel to it. I, I don't think it's a coincidence now. All of me, Ramesh, Sindhu, there's all of these Asian comedians that are on TV now. We are all the children of goodness gracious me. Did you experience a lot of racism in I mean, that I, part of South London? I grew up in Croydon, and to be honest with you, yeah. Croydon is much maligned, often by me. Croydon is an incredibly multicultural place, and actually, the first time anyone was racist to me, his, the, guy, the guy's mum was half Indian. And so I remember my mum kind of explaining, like, this guy's going through some stuff. Like, it's not, I don't think you should take this personally. <laughs> but then when I went to school in Orpington, it was a slightly different feel. Like, you, it was less diverse. The racism in the streets started happening a little bit. I sort of felt that there was a general consensus that those people were in the wrong. And we already, we accepted that if you used racist terminology, if you hurled racial epithets around, you were morally in the wrong. Then after 9-11, 
there was a sort of shift in tone. And after 7-7, there felt like there was a shift in tone. And it felt like multiculturalism had gone from being something we should celebrate to something that was a problem to be discussed. What we see now is a kind of backsliding. You know, now... I was, I was about to say, I like, I like to try and keep a linear structure, but where are we now? Well, we're now in a place where somebody who uses uh, racist language in a newspaper column is the Prime Minister. I can't help but see that as a regression. You know, if somebody had used the language that Boris Johnson used in his Telegraph columns, Mm. there would have been some sense. Bank robbers, watermelon smile, picking and eats. These are all... This is all Googleable stuff. Something has definitely shifted. I I think the, the thing that I see is that it's really, really complicated now. Yeah. Because... Uh, where it was very clear where we were. Now, they'll go, yeah, but what about Priti Patel, his Home Secretary, and what mm. about Rishi Sunak, his Chancellor? And if he's really a racist, he wouldn't... And you go... Yeah. <laughs> you know, the idea of political blackness now can feel slightly clumsy. We've got other things. Oh, great. We can, we can keep picking at these while I throw food on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I am a food professional. So here are the tuna tostadas oh, yes. with chipotle mayo, and here are the vegetable tostadas with a yapa Amazing. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. That's great. Yeah, I just think that there's, there was a useful idea in the 80s that there should be some solidarity between people from different ethnic backgrounds. It would be useful to see a bit more of that. I think as a community, now we have to decide whether we're going to continue to fight and stand up against racism or if we're going to become apologists for it. Do you think the people who are in, who've gone into government are apologists for it? Anyone who stands by the Sewell report. Which was that uh, Britain is not institutionally racist. Yeah, and, and, and did so on some fairly dubious grounds. I think anybody standing behind that is doing a disservice to ethnic minorities in Britain. I, I absolutely believe that. That and, does uh, include the Home Secretary, Bridget Patel. Indeed, yes. Every Asian kid's least favourite aunt. <laughs> uh, did you have one? Like that? <laughs> I'm not at liberty to die. Are you not? Listen, no, of course I didn't. No, of course my you didn't have a tune all, so all your aunts are lovely. My aunts are all good as girls. And they're very proud of, of you. <laughs> and and um, they just hope you get a proper job um, at some point. I was going to wear a white shirt today and then I didn't. I think that's a very... I've not worn white clothes for about 15 years. Really? For that reason? <laughs> for are, that you in, are you incapable reason. of getting up off a table Absolutely without... Absolutely incapable. I genuinely find myself mystified when I see an elegant man rise from a restaurant table in a white shirt and there's not stains of gravy down there. I don't know how it works. It's, some it's just kind one of... of the reasons I could never have been in the polyphonic spree or indeed most cults. Just the white robes would be a nightmare for me. <laughs> yeah, that's a conversation in the Ku Klux Klan. I can't imagine a splash of colour in any sense of something they're particularly <laughs> it's, after. It's something they're after. That's good. That's really good. It's really good. I think you, you once said that, you know, I went to a particular school which enabled me to go to a particular university which had a particular hold on comedy. Yeah, because I went to Durham. It's the considerably scruffier cousin of Oxford and Cambridge when it comes to student comedy. But what it does, it, what it did enable me to do was the university would part subsidise the group because we were a university society. And so it enabled me to go to Edinburgh. Do you remember the first thing you wrote and thinking, actually, that is, that's a proper sketch and it's funny and it's got the narrative beats of the stuff? Well, one of the things that my grandfather and I used to do was watch um, Humphrey Bogart films. And I wrote a kind of sketch that was kind of a parody of a, 
a film noir thing. I can't really remember all of the beats of it, but it was the first time I remember thinking, oh, I've managed to get the beginning, middle and end of this and get all the jokes in. That was the first time I was like, I think I managed to get the sense of where it's going. Be, yeah, where it's going. Were you writing with someone or was it just by yourself? We would write stuff alone and then bring it to the group. Right. And so if you show yourself to be a nice person who I like, I will get dig my closet to you and never release you. So, so is there a basement in your house with lots of people chained to the radiator? Because back in '97, they were they yeah. wrote a really good three-minute sketch. I was in a sketch group with Tom Neenan and Ed Gamble, and so Tom Neenan is the co-head writer with Tim Telling on the Mash Report, and um, he and I were in a double act together for years, and we, you know, we we've continued to work together, and Ed Gamble and I lived together. And I was best man at Tom's wedding and will be best man at Ed's wedding if COVID ever allows it to happen. But my mum's just like... Can you get some new friends? Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Tom and I have managed to work together this long without him snapping and murdering me in my sleep is a real testament to his enduring patience, I think. Uh, this is a side question. Is there some kind of accommodation agency where <laughs> comedians can... <laughs> Find flatmates. Because <laughs> yeah, you do all end up living, you know, Badil lived with Skinner for a while. If you do stand up particularly and you live with people who have actual nine to five jobs, you end up never seeing the people you live with because the hours you keep are just so wildly different. And I think that's why a lot of comedians end up living together. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, you know, you, yeah, come, no, to, you come to the end of university and you yeah. suddenly think, oh shit, there's the world. I just started doing various office jobs and I basically said to the temp agency, I'll do anything as long as I can leave at 6pm on the dot. So you can get to a sound check? So I could get to a gig. Yeah, or basically a gig. so I could get to a gig. I mean, at that stage of your career, Jay, uh, I don't want to demystify the show business of stand-up. There are very few sound checks. <laughs> you know, you're largely working in rooms where the microphone is a piece of set decoration yep. more than it is an actual necessity. Because, because they can hear you at the back. Yeah. If they want to. The back is very close to the front. Run. The back is close to the front. And you turn up in the pub and the escalating horror you feel when you realise there's no separate room and the gig is going to happen in the pub and the people in the pub do not know a gig is about to happen. Oh, God. <laughs> Where did it start? I, you know, what was your... You'd done sketch comedy in, in Durham, but... I started that... doing stand-up in Durham as well. Um, Ed Gamble, who just was more aware of everything in comedy. Where, you know, he kind of taught me... Uh, you know, a lot about what the actual mechanics of comedy were. Ed and Tom were definitely more aware. I just knew that I liked it. But they had done, like, a little bit of research into what a career might involve. And so Ed had sort of... So I, I love this, because, you know, there's obviously careers advice at university, <laughs> but actually, in your case, it's Ed Gamble yeah, it's and Ed. Tom, your mate Tom, <laughs> saying, come in and have a sit down, and we'll take you through the career structure of being a feckless stand-up comedian. <laughs> And, um, Do you remember what the first fully formed joke was? I remember the first thing that I had that was like a sort of proper routine. I love Durham very much as a city, and I'm not saying that this is like a particularly Durham-based practice, mm -hmm. but a few times cars would drive up and people would just shout racial abuse at you and then just drive off. Once a guy did it, but his car didn't have automatic windows. So he had, <laughs> so he had to, to wind, wind down the... He, he had to slow down the car, pretty much grind it to a halt, wind down his window, then shout what he wanted to shout, and then wind the window back 
you know, obviously we, we don't condone racist yeah. behaviour, but he was putting effort. The sort of physical comedy of acting out, him winding the window down, that was the first thing I did that I thought, oh, that's like a sort of, that's a routine. When did the fear go? Or does it never go? I mean, doing, doing live at the Apollo, I've often wondered about the disorientation of trying to come through that screen which says live at the Apollo and they're pumping dry ice at you and there's three and a half thousand people or whatever in the Apollo, maybe it's slightly fewer than that, and the light's cutting through it so you are literally blind. Yeah. Is it still terrifying? Yeah, that? it's always terrifying. All that happens is, is you just get better at managing the fear. When, when you first start for the first two or three years, it, your whole day is the gig. When you're like gigging three or four times a week, there's a point, there's a difficult point where it's ruining half your week. And then what starts to happen is you realise that you're thinking about the gig later and later in the day. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Oh, we've got something else coming as well. Here's the soft-shell crab. Right. I've never said no to a soft-shell crab. No, of course. Why would you? Why would you? These are the pork belly tacos. Excellent. Wow. So I've got avocado on my jeans. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm not proud. Did the MASH report come out of nowhere, or was it something that... Because uh, was Tom Neenan on that before you, or were you on it together? Or? No, what, what happened... The BBC put this kind of call out, as they had done, people had done it in some form since I'd been doing comedy, but they said we want a sort of Saturday Night Live or The Daily Show style late night comedy show. The MASH report was the last one to be filmed. And the reason it was the last one to be filmed was that they could not find anybody to host it. And they kind of wanted someone incredibly famous and all of those people sort of said no. Oh man, <laughs> that stuffed child crab is insane. So good. Very good, isn't it? That is incredible. So the soft shell crab is with slaw, jalapeno and mint mayo. Wow. And it's battered and in, in very good ways. Because I'm making you talk, that's the only reason that I'm actually one taco ahead of you at all <laughs> points. So I'm on the pork belly one, which is with the tomatillo salsa and it's got ground down uh, pork, pork scratchings over the top. And then I'm, I'm generally of the view that most things are improved by the addition of pork scratchings in some form. pork scratchings on the top. Do you know who the uh, people who turned the job down are? No. I, I just know that they were more famous than me. So they did these three pilots. We did our pilot. We had a really fun time making it. And I... It, um, you had Rachel... Rachel Par Harris. And was Ellie... Ellie Taylor, Taylor Stephen Robinson. Allen. Yeah, so mo to be honest, a lot of the core team, certainly the core team that are in every episode, the two, Steve Allen and Ellie on the news desk, uh, and then me and Rachel, we were, we were all involved, and Tom Neenan came on immediately. We all had a very good time, and at the end of it we said, that was fun, I suspect we'll never see each other again. <laughs> <laughs> because those shows never got made, really. 
there is this whole thing about when when it got well, people say cancelled, but mm. which really means a television show just didn't get recommissioned, yeah. and this happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. But that it was because of the fact that you were all left-wing commie seditious bastards. <laughs> I mean, right-wing comedy. Simon Evans attempts it, but I, I, anybody who doesn't know Simon Evans should listen to because his material is very, very good. Very got it. And, and comes to a certain place. But even he, I don't really think his heart's in it. He's, I mean, you know, it's basically centrist comedy. Well, he, uh, he's, yeah, I mean, I don't know, libertarian. I certainly think that it's not, I guess, explicitly conservative. I mean, Jeff Norcott, who was on the show with us, yeah. is a conservative voting comedian. And, uh, but there are very few of them. What do you think that is? Is it, it, is it just the thing that comedy, there, there's nothing immediately comedic on the right? We've had a conservative government in this country for, or at least a conservative majority in coalition government or an outright conservative government yeah. for 10 years. You know, the thick of it was an, an explicit attack on the spin machine of the Labour Party. You know, and I don't remember at the time anyone going, well, where is the attack on the... Yeah. You know, everybody accepted that it was a brilliant comedy and it was satirically valid and it was targeted at the government of the day. And I, I think if right-wing people want more comedy, they should get worse at winning elections. Uh, another dish is arriving. How, how are you wow. doing for appetite? So this yeah, is the great. lamb. Oh, wow. Look so this that. is a huge lamb shank that's falling apart. Yeah. Into, just falling off the bone. That's incredible. The Lord Taverners thing, I do have to talk about it. Seems like it was in many ways, an absolute gift. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't necessarily that much fun. You know what? And I'm sure you've died before. Yeah, of course. Hundreds of times. Did you well, Google? The, did you know? Did I've been you... to the lunch before. Because I love cricket. Because there are certain stereotypes about South Asians that I, we're all legally obliged to uphold. Right, So okay. I do love Indian food, and I do love cricket. I mean, I'm not saying you called it wrong, because everything you were talking about... What's that brilliant line? I should have known this would happen when I agreed to do a set in front of people who colonised my ancestors <laughs> and then some like in the audience shout back, that was ages ago! <laughs> that was ages ago. That was ages ago. Which is actually comedy gold. It's very funny. It's very funny. I mean, we can split hairs about how long <laughs> ago 1947 really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, have you knew yeah, them so Bob, well? You know, Did it take you by surprise? Bob Dylan it? is older than the nation of India. <laughs> but... I looked out in the audience, I knew the kind of crowd that was there. The, the one thing I've not really talked about before is that just before I was on, uh, Harry Redknapp was on. And Harry Redknapp was doing, you know, was being interviewed about something. And he sort of made a joke about tax evasion. And the audience really laughed at it. And in my head, I was like, you're fucking getting the political material. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so th this is interesting. So basically, something happened which made you think you're a bunch of tossers, well, and I'm giving you my worldview because you I just, need it. I just thought, you know, if it's fun to make a joke about avoiding taxes in a room full of people that are very wealthy, yeah. and it's a charity gig, you know, I'm not getting paid to be there because I believe in the charity and it does really great work. It absolutely was a poor decision. It wasn't an accident. Is it what wasn't you're an accident. I knew what I was doing, and I knew what was going to happen. You know, after Zinedine Zidane was sent off in the 2006 World Cup final for headbutting Marco Materazzi, and he was asked afterwards, you know, this is his final act as a professional footballer, one of the greatest footballers of all time, and his final act had been to 
pretty much, and sort of with these kind of musketeers, Makaleli that he brought back into the international fold, he's got France to the World Cup final and he headbutts a player and is sent off. And his last act as a professional footballer is to walk past the World Cup, having been sent off in disgrace. And afterwards, he was asked about it and he was like, no, I don't regret it. <laughs> he was like, because there are, there are certain lines that you can't cross. And he crossed one of those lines. And for some reason, I found the idea of those people thinking it was fine, to, it was so funny to laugh about tax evasion. Particularly given how wealthy they are. Given how wealthy they are, given the date, you know, so close to the general election. I think it was December the, either the 2nd or the 4th, and the election was the 12th. Yeah. So it's quite, you know, it's a febrile political environment. I just thought, either this is apolitical or it's political. And you can't have it be political, but only if we agree with it. So are you literally leading into your anger, going with it? I don't think I expected the, like them to be as volcanically hostile, but also... Did the bread rolls hit you? No, it didn't get anywhere near me. No, okay. Well, to the extent that I had to say, did someone throw that bread roll at you? And my friend Tim Key was very visible to me in the front row, and he was just nodding at me just to let me know. Oh, well, Tim Key is uh, Key's as though as well. <laughs> yeah. Did he go on after you? No, he wisely had just decided to accept the lunch invite only. There was a comics <laughs> table. Chris Addison was there, Tim Key was there, John Robbins was there. There was a whole... Miles Jupp was there. There's a whole comedian's table there. You have not really, I think, died doesn't quite describe what's happened. It's a bit more than that. No, it's a volcanic... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all, you've been taken out of, and you've been crucified on the well, no, it's all fine. It. do you then have to come off the stage walk back around the room and walk to the comedian's table yeah alright so now what I really want to know yeah what do they say Chris Addison had gotten in an argument with somebody he was he had like got in an argument with. I don't think it, this is correct but he might have gotten an argument with the bread roll thrower. I can't remember <laughs> if that was true but he definitely got in an argument with somebody Miles was very angry Tim... Hang on, hang on. I, I can't necessarily call which way that Miles would be angry. Oh, no. He's, no. Quite, he's quite posh. He was, he was angry on my behalf. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. My, Miles' politics uh, are swing violently against what you assume that they are. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but the thing about that sort of thing is it's like, you know, I only got myself to blame. And so... Yeah, but it sounds I, like in, in retrospect you enjoyed it and you're quite cool yeah, with it. There sort of wasn't really... You know, they, I really fundamentally believe they have a right to boo. I don't think they have the right to throw things. But you have a right to boo. That's an audience. I don't have a problem with it. The problem was that somebody had filmed it and it had it was on the Telegraph website by right. seven pm, and that's when things sort of get that's when things get out of control, really. You've announced a new tour. Mm. Has the eighteen months of what we've been through been a time for new material? Did you find yourself thinking, well, it's going to be a piece of piss? I mean, it's, it's not going to be hard. Or do you think audiences, the last thing they're going to be wanting is you reflecting on the past 18 months? That was the question that I've been asking myself a lot because I've been doing Zoom gigs and they're very enthusiastic, the audiences on Zoom gigs, but it's hard to tell whether they're just enthusiastic, you know, like in the depths of It's a thing that's going on. Yeah, it's a thing that's going on. And, you know, they feel they're great because the audience is very part of the show. It's a very, it's a very intimate way of performing. Because, you know, I'm in my house and they're in their house. And if you feel very close to them... Have you done them in ways where you can actually hear them laughing? Yes, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Always Be Comedy, which is a great comedy club in Kennington, has been doing Zoom gigs pretty much the whole time where you can hear the audience back to you. You know, for everyone... Are sit-down comedy, then? Or have you stood up to do it? No, I've sat down. <laughs> I don't know why. I felt like standing up would be almost too much. The point of interest to me at the moment is how will audiences take it? I've only done a couple of gigs... 
open air gigs and I've done one gig in a room. My concern is, will they, do they not want to hear anything about it? I guess the people that come to see me know what they're getting into. As much as you become more capable, when you start a new cycle of new material, you are back to square one. You have nothing. I mean, it's a kind of extreme example of it, but the Jerry Seinfeld documentary that's just called Comedian is about him starting from scratch after the show ends. So he does the show and it just sort of follows him around comedy clubs in New York, starting from scratch. Now, because it's Seinfeld, you know, he has hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. The stakes are not quite the same, but it's a very, very good account of the cycle of how a comedian starts coming up with material. And that's where you've been over the past few months? Yeah, and I'm kind of getting back into it now because we're starting to gig properly in front of people because you feel now like you're getting a read on what the audience wants. So this is sort of a closing question because we're going to push on to dessert. There's churros up there, which has to be done. Nish Kumar, are you still funny? Uh, comedians, uh, comedians never ask that question, but I think, fuck it, I think it's an important question to ask. Uh, let, me, let me phrase it this way, Jay. Yeah. I'm as funny as I've ever been, and how you feel about me will entirely determine your response to my response. Well, I think a grateful nation will rejoice. Um, all that remains <laughs> for me to say is, Nish Kumar, thank you for coming out to lunch in a restaurant, Santa Remedio. Thank you, Jay. This is, you know, I, I love Mexican food. Good. So this is this has been absolutely perfect. Well, we will continue. As you heard there, almost all the food stayed firmly in our hands. None of it was thrown, though some did end up on my trousers. Anyone got any tips for avocado stains? Um, thank you to Natalie and the team at the magnificent Mexican restaurant Santo Remedio in London Bridge, and we would be eternally grateful if you could support this podcast by doing one or all of the following. Rate and comment on this show wherever you get your podcasts, tell all your friends, and listen to previous episodes. It all helps us to keep making more of them. And if you like your treats freshly cooked, follow out to lunch and you will receive new episodes the second they're ready. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon and the mix engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Jemima Rathbone is assistant producer, the producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's the Blinded by the Light and Bend It Like Beckham film director, it's Garunda Chadda. He walked over, I crossed the carpet with my camera, carried on filming, but was so excited that most of what I filmed is Bruce Bruce's chest. chest. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. <laughs>